Hello, Mark Washbourne here, your host, and welcome to The Ready Podcast. Hello again, it's Mark Washbourne here from ReadyTech, and today's podcast is a discussion about an area that many of us may not think about often, and that is the justice system. And specifically, we're going to look at the impact and opportunity for technology in the system. And I'm talking courts, criminal cases and civil matters to tribunals and the resolution of of more minor disputes. And to discuss that with is none other than Michael Talbot. And previously, Michael was the Dept Secretary for Courts and Tribunal Services in New South Wales, where he was responsible for not only administration of the state's justice system, he also led an agenda of innovation and digitization in this space. And what you're going to hear is Michael's insights into key principles guiding the adoption of new technology in the justice sector, how to get things moving and drive change in such a venerable set of institutions, and ultimately how to be ready to navigate digital transformation while ensuring that justice is as accessible, balanced and effective as possible. So let's get into it. Michael Talbot, welcome to the Ready Podcast. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. What I'd really like to start with, Michael, is to delve into your career journey. And uh, maybe as you talk us through that, you could focus on what I've observed is this recurring theme of uh, always looking to innovate and, and, and challenge thinking. So I'd love to hear that story. Well, thank you. I started off uh, in, as a professional in the accounting area, and I think after a time of me explaining to people why things were going wrong and could be done better, that they said, okay, come and do the operational aspects of it. I did for a time uh, run the retail operations of Australia Post when it went through its most transformational of change and both the culture, the process, the systems, and the client engagements. And um, that really gave me a taste for and an appreciation of how change was ma- managed and how it uh, was uh, made successful. And uh, more recently, I've been in the justice sector, which has been a very tradition-based organization, but which is now really starting to embrace change. And that brought about remarkable improvements in the cost, in the access, and in the client engagement. I'd love to talk about the, the justice segment, obviously, today. And... I think that it's something that probably not many of us think about too often and uh, probably tends to fly under the radar. I think that many of us sort of take it for granted and we just expect that we, you know, we have a high-functioning justice system. But uh, you know, given it's uh, such a large and important pillar of society, do you see the same, that, uh, that you know, maybe we, uh, we take it for granted? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's um, a fundamental part of the fabric of the community we enjoy and prosper in. Uh, it has a huge breadth, everything from the more high-profile cases that you see on TV and in the press, from uh, serious crime, murder and the, and the like, to a major corporate crime where uh, directors have failed in their duties and, and uh, shareholders have suffered. But the great bulk of it is about 
ordinary individuals looking for justice to protect the rights and privileges that they should enjoy in the community and have the confidence to undertake both their personal lives and the industries they're involved in, uh, safe in the knowledge that uh, there is a justice framework and should they need to reach out for it, then it's available to them. It costs in across Australia more than $2 billion a year and there's uh, the best part of one and a half million different transactions going on across uh, courts and tribunals uh, in this country. And uh, that's impacting on a lot of lives, Uh, everything from domestic violence, the protection that people are seeking from domestic violence, mundane things like recovering debts. So it's, although most of us fortunately don't come in contact with the justice system, uh, there are a lot of people who do, and that is making sure that their rights and privileges are protected. It sort of, it strikes me, it's similar to our currency in some ways, right? You know, it's the absolute bedrock of society that, you know, we have, we need an incredible amount of trust in. Exactly. If you don't have trust in the currency, you know, you have anarchy and and the community Mm. collapses. It's same in in the justice system. If you can't be confident about carrying out your personal lives or or participating in the commerce of the country, then the whole society is affected. You spoke about, Michael, the driving change through the justice sector and, of course, looking at innovation. So can you talk us through some of those really guiding principles, you know, the, the North Star, as it were, as you move through that to, you know, ensuring, you know, one of those aspects you talked about was, of course, you know, access to justice. And I'd imagine ensuring that the system is accessible and as high quality as possible. Exactly. I mean, access to justice is embodied in many pieces of legislation and certainly in the philosophies of government and courts across the country. And that access is impeded if you can't find a solution, you, you find yourself confronting impenetrable language or processes, then you get this fatigue and you, you stop seeking the justice that you deserve. And so access to justice is making about taking complex systems and challenging systems and making them simple and intuitive in their accessibility, like every other aspect of service and engagement that we experience in our everyday lives. I'd imagine also there's a, a strong element here of fairness and equality, ensuring the system in me is as free of bias as possible, uh, you know, upholding these aspects you know, of the system. And should, is it a way to think about it, you know, is ensuring that the scales of justice, you know, are, are balanced uh, also as you keeping a very, very strong eye on that as you're looking to move through an, an areas of change? Exactly. Uh, People in regional and remote areas, they can't get in the car and drive five minutes down to a courthouse or to find some legal counsel. Technology enables them to get that sort of access. People whose uh, first language isn't English need access in a language that they can understand and in simple terms, simple English terms that they can understand and get access to. And all of that is about ensuring every member of the community, no matter what their station or location, can access the justice that we'd all expect to be available to us. I'd imagine as well, Michael, that you know, working in this space, that the justice system has, of course, you know, a very, very proud history. You know, these are institutions, revered institutions, you know, steeped in tradition. Does that act as a maybe a barrier or an impediment, you know, to innovation? I think you know it's certainly not uncommon that you know we think of the justice space as maybe slower to adopt technology. So how do you sort of marry up those really deep traditions, you know, with the desire to adopt new ways of working? 
No, I think that's right. I think the legal industry has, um, and the justice sector more broadly, has a, a tradition of precedent and past custom and practice. And, you know, traditions should be respected and observed, there's no doubt. But I think if you look around both in the administration, in government and community representatives and in judicial leadership, they are looking to say we need to have a world-class system and an efficient and effective operation. And I think when you find those change champions, then they can be respectful of tradition but be embracing the opportunities that technology and reform bring and their ambitions for that. And so specifically in your role in, in New South Wales, can you share with us a bit about how you how you led that change and got things moving, if you will, and brought people along on that journey? There's a remarkable number of stakeholders in the justice sector. Uh, many have constitutional or legal protections for independence, and many have diverse objectives, notwithstanding they're trying to serve a single justice system. So the role that I played was about identifying the key participants in that, clearly identifying their objectives and making sure that we built a system that served all of those and that they felt consulted and confident that uh, when we came to the implementation, that their role and their functions were going to be supported uh, in the best way possible, because all of them had to participate to see the situation, to see the system succeed. Obviously, that stakeholder management was absolutely key. Can you share with us anything that, that didn't work? Well, yes. At times, we had uh, members of the legal profession um, complaining about um, the fact that video conferencing and digital technology was destroying the fabric of court systems as we knew it. We didn't identify in the stakeholder group, such as those that had built up businesses around the inefficiencies of the court system, people who would stand in line on behalf of clients to lodge documents and forms and to get documents signed and things like that. And so there was a whole bunch of people that came out of the woodwork that uh, whose interests were in jeopardy and were likely to oppose us. And a very specific cohort, you know, the way that I understand the system as well is that, you know, the judges, of course, have a lot of influence yes. and, you know, I'm sure that they want to feel very much unfettered uh, to carry out their duties. And so, you know, was this a, a cohort where you needed a, a, a particular strategy and uh, level of communication? Uh, absolutely. And they're very... Um you know, an intelligent group of people. We're very fortunate in this country to have a remarkable cohort of judicial officers who are world-class in stature and uh, professionalism. But uh, yes, they are very jealous, and rightfully so, of their independence of government and the executive to ensure that their role is unfettered, as you say. And so it was important that we find change champions in that group as well. And there were plenty of them, particularly in the leadership group of the judiciary, to uh, want to be a part of a, a modern era and a, to be proud of the court jurisdiction that they were responsible for. And so working with those champions, making sure that their needs were met and that the system was ensuring they are able to 
to perform and participate in the system to the fullest extent possible, unfettered by any other interference, was an important ingredient in getting success. Mm, yeah, just a fascinating environment. I, you mentioned before access to justice as one of the guiding principles. Why should people care about opportunities for digital transformation in the justice system? You know, can you expand more? Certainly. Well, it happens at a number of layers. One a tradition-based system based around paper is high, when it reaches a certain scale, is high risk, uh, highly error prone. The rework and reprocessing of errors and claims can be very detrimental to the participants in the organisation, and it significantly undermines the integrity and, and trust uh, in the justice system. Those sorts of processes can result in people being incarcerated incorrectly or released from prison incorrectly, or they can result in outcomes that are not consistent with the, the law itself. At another level, the government would be seeing that it's a very expensive business and looking for efficiencies as we move transactions into computer systems and only employ people in the value-adding parts of the processes is another way of another influence and, and uh, objective that is being met. And then ultimately, it's the expectations of the community. Everything they do in their current life is uh, intuitive, digitally available, and uh, available on the move in any of the devices that they wish or any, any of the times they wish to get access to the service. And so being responsive to those expectations now is also a driver of the digital transformation processes that are on foot now. I think that's so true. If you if you think about our community engaging with and increasingly these extremely efficient government platforms like MyGov and you know in our own state, Service New South Wales, I think that when you come across an area of service where you don't have that elegant digital experience, you know it, it certainly feels like there's a, a point of friction there that clearly leads to frustration, right? Absolutely, and um, we see it in in so many ways. People just drop out of the system because mm -hmm. it. The complications are so impenetrable. That's not healthy for the community. So obviously a big part of this justice system is is effectively helping two parties who are in a dispute reach an outcome. Yes. You know, interesting to to hear if if are we seeing a trend towards more disputes being effectively managed without humans and, and, and managed online. Can you share a bit about you know what's going on there? Absolutely. I mean, particularly for small value claims and, and disputes, uh, an expensive court process or a tribunal process is really not, not the answer. And there will be an increasing momentum towards online dispute resolutions, which enable the participants to uh, help refine the areas of disagreement, clarify the outcomes that each of the parties wish to receive and either on their own recognizance or with the assistance of facilitated mediation come to an answer without having to go through the expensive process both for the community and the individuals of participating in in court related uh, topics in even in the more complicated civil matters there's already a trend where the participants uh, a judicial officer all participate without actually coming to a courtroom. They do so digitally and exchange data and instructions and orders with one another at a time of the parties pleasing and access and 
the matters are completely resolved without needing an expensive courthouse to to participate in. So those are all trends that are going to be accelerated, particularly following the experience of COVID, where people operating remotely has become a paradigm that's quite acceptable. Yes. So uh, I think some of the themes there through that online dispute resolution is it sounds like there's it's going to be more accessible. Yeah. Uh, again, I think about those remote communities, yes. uh, you know, more efficient, of course, more cost effective. Yes. Do you see increasingly that even, you know, very complex cases or more complex cases could, could be could be solved and that we see more emergence of technologies like artificial intelligence being applied to the space to, you know, to 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 resolve cases that are you know very complex in nature? Well, certainly I think artificial intelligence will play an important part in the future development of courts and its operations. I suspect that it will happen, first of all, in the administration and case management of the matters because you're bringing together a lot of complex uh, and different elements. If you're talking about juries and things like that or and prosecution and defence, courtrooms, judges, witnesses, the whole thing becomes quite a complex array of things which services like artificial intelligence could really manage. I think artificial intelligence will come to play a part in judicial outcomes as well, particularly in the lower value matters. But that will move at a pace that the community continues to have confidence in the justice system. But there's certainly room for us to explore how that might be a further element in providing access to justice. Yeah, it uh, it sort of brings to mind you know, this big discussion around ethical AI, doesn't it? Yes. You know, whereby you know ensuring that whether it be biases or inequality are not actually potentially even made worse. Yes. Or uh, you know entrenched further by the use of of technology and i think you know we're seeing more and more discussion around that and you know by way of example you know it, it could be that those with a stronger technical capability have some sort of advantage in in that case so i'd imagine that the justice sector needs to be just like many others you know, very aware of ensuring those checks and balances stay in place to ensure that you know we're moving to higher level of inequality and not actually creating injustices no, I think that's a very good point. And the beauty about digital development in the right uh, way makes sure that the parties are on a common platform and that you, to the extent you can, at least in the digital space, uh, ensure equality of participation and to make sure that the imbalances of power between the parties are minimised to the extent possible and that arguments are uh, decided on their merit rather than the particular grunt or superior knowledge of one of the parties over the other. Yeah. And uh, are there areas where you'd just like to see humans remain very deeply in the system? You know, are there no-go zones where, you know, you know, you would say that, you know, we just, we just need people involved here because there isn't, you know, an area of judgment? Uh, I think the role of, of judges, particular in dealing with complex matters around the motivations of people, particularly involved in crime and, and the like, yeah. it's not a clear-cut matter. Mm. And you do need to take into account, it's not a cookie-cutter situation, you do need to take into account the elements that were in at play and involved and how that mitigated or made less horrendous the nature of the crime and the participants in it in deciding you know what the outcome or punishment should be and i you, i could see that 
the confidence of the community about people making those judgments in a in a human context are important. Yeah, so some people might find it quite scary to have computers yes. involved, eh? yes. and, and and naturally very concerning. It's just just one example of so many sectors where you know the intersection of humans and technology. There's just so much yeah. more that we have to go and learn, right? Uh, absolutely, and and technology is really there to support what is essentially a human process and so it's it's not to to replace it but it to support it and make sure that it's operating in the best manner it can now there's there's obviously michael a, a huge amount of focus across all industries and discussion around the power of data and applying data in ways to well enable better better ways to do things and so applying this to the justice system you know just interested in the experience that you've had, the use of data to date, and maybe the potential for the use of data in the future. You raise a good point, and I think it's over, often overlooked when people are thinking about the transformation of digital enablement. I mean, data plays a most powerful role in a, a digital environment in, in these three or four classic ways. One, it can enable uh, judicial officers to see the pattern of punishments that have been applied to mm. partic- to the type of matter that they have before them. This ensures that they stay within the range of penalties and punishments that gives consistency and integrity to the justice system. And, uh, you know, they're very important elements in the confidence the community has, as well as the consistency in the outcome. They play an important role in the administration for people managing the system and all of its pain points. It probably doesn't surprise you that the criminal justice system has seasons. There's lower crime in winter and higher crime in summer, especially just before Christmas. (laughs) And so you need to be able to manage your resources around those ebbs and flows in the most efficient way. If you have people standing still doing nothing or you have them overwhelmed, neither of those situations is important. The other is just not on the data but on the digital process. If you make it simple not only for the people of the community wishing to participate in it but also the staff, you enable them to be recruited and made productive by the end of the week instead of taking months and and years to, to come up to full capacity. You know, the third element of it, which is quite important, is that the data helps policy and lawmakers understand the impact of the legislation. They might be putting in place several uh, legislative provisions or policy provisions that they think is going to correct an aberrant element in the community. And they need data both to see whether those impacts have occurred and they need data to forecast if I do tweak the legislation in this way, what is the expected outcome that might be occurring in the criminal justice and civil justice system? And similarly, administrators looking to forecast into the future can do so if they have a, a robust database from which to make a forward-looking judgments. All really fascinating stuff. I think none more so than the ability to ensure uh, consistency across the system, right, and a very diverse system. Uh, through that uh, interrogation of of data and outcomes. Absolutely important. I mean, if you don't want somebody charged with the same crime serving 20 years if the person in the court next door is getting off with a six-month bond. I mean, that's all part of both fairness to, you know, both of those participants, but also the community's confidence that there is consistency in the way that justice is applied. Maybe we can move on, Michael, to very specifically 
the technology environment and the ecosystems that are in place in the justice system. I'm sure that, like many industries, there's significant legacy technology. Uh, there's probably large monolithic systems, you know, which may be quite rigid, difficult to change, you know, high risk to change. How should leaders in the space, you know, be thinking about how to sort of move through that and, and effectively, you know, cut through that and move towards innovation? No, you raise a good point, and it is a, a characteristic of much of the justice sector in this country, and indeed across common law, commonwealth countries. They've all made some investment in technology, usually, you know, small applications that have been introduced to support the processes of the court. As is want in most systems, they then get used well beyond the original specifications of those systems and elements start to get added to it, uh, often to overcome other deficiencies elsewhere in the organization. Uh, in my organization, that included deficiencies in the account management system. So we built a, a finance a component. But what happens over time is that you've now got this monolithic process, which has built like a coral reef over time into your organization. And it's gone from being helpful to being mission critical. And yet you see great potential to further evolve and develop and to take advantage of the innovation that's coming both from technology and from new thinking about how the justice sector should operate. And so now you're, you're looking to, do I continue to try and add on components to the existing or do I step away? Stepping away is high risk because it's now mission critical operation and high cost because replacing the entirety of what might be 15, 20 years worth of uh, development uh, in a single process is is probably going to be beyond the appetite of the, of the budget and certainly beyond the ap risk appetite of the organisation and its participants. Um, so, yes, you need now to think carefully about how I step from where I, what's the current state to, to where I need to be. And most organizations can see the vision about the future state, but they need help in building the bridge between the current state and the future state. And nobody in that organization is going to step off until that bridge is clear and <laughs> how it's going to work is confidently developed within that organization. And that's where you need to start to think outside your own uh, domain as to who's going to help you with that process. I think that's so true and very valid advice. And I, I also think it's the first time I've heard the term coral reef or the growth <laughs> of applied to technology, but I intend to use that myself in the future. So thank you. It can hold back the sea, we all know. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. And um, another observation, obviously ReadyTech increasingly operates in this in this segment, in the justice system as well. And one of observation that we have is that there is a lot of uh, there's been a lot of in-house built technology, you know, DIY technology yeah. built by in-house technology teams. And uh, you know, do you see a shift more to you know, the use of specialist providers and third-party providers and you know, vertical-focused technology providers, uh, you know, as we see in so many other industries? Absolutely, and you've got some stakeholders that are tied to the legacy systems, as you mentioned, the IT shop. You know that's their baby, and and they've um, 
spend a lot of time and energy into it, but without actually realizing, you know, they've got some key man deficiencies because it's usually so unique to that particular set of applications that nobody else in the in the world knows what it is. You're right, it is about moving in with partners and partners that understand the complexities that you're dealing with. Partners that can bring, you know, modular applications that improve the functionality, enhance the innovation that it's available to you without actually having to jeopardize the legacy systems and who can be integrated with those systems in a way that continues to be seamless to the participants in, in, the, in the justice sector, continue to enable them to operate and allow for the transition from the old legacy systems, module by module, application by application, mm. in a way that is low risk and is within the budget and risk appetite of those sort of organizations. I think the other thing that you're looking for is a long-term partner, somebody that knows what your industry is about, talks the language, and there is a real language in justice, and you have to show an affinity and an affiliation with that language so that you you can demonstrate to the client that you're appreciating their issues and are responding to those sorts of issues. And I think you need to work with a, a partner that has a community of users and across various jurisdictions so that you can take advantage of the innovation and the transformation of um, Yes, by harnessing going, a wider community of it, other exactly. participants. Yeah. Then, you know, you're not trying to rely only on your innovation and your only thinking, of which, of course, uh, uh, there's much going on, but you're taking advantage of all of the other innovation and thinking that's going on about the place and applying that as your needs and capabilities emerge. And I think the other thing your partner needs to be able to do is not only create these modular applications that you can uh, integrate into your system, but you want to have control over your operation. So it needs to be highly configurable. When law and business practices are changing or new innovations are available, uh, you know, it's within your control um, and that there is a maturity in the partnership between the supplier and you as a court that you're not, you know, you're not, neither is dependent, but each is bringing value uh, to the process. And I think in, in those circumstances, you are not only taking advantage of other innovations, but you're dealing with a supplier who's made commitments about continuing investment in the product. And by your participation in those communities, you're influencing what that uh, development is. And so as your needs evolve and emerge, you know you have a strong role to play in making sure that the technology is evolving in the direction that suits those justice sector participants. Just totally agree with everything you said. And I think one of the points there, I think, around the modular architecture is about to be able to manage change in bite-sized chunks. Yes. And of course, that helps to build momentum. But it also goes to, I think, building a inherent or, or an intrinsic um, adaptability uh, and agility within the organization as well, right? Exactly. And then, then you're working with a partner that can match the pace of change and the cadence of change that you wish to embrace. Mm -hmm. You might be slow one minute, you might be fast the other, but you're dealing with a partner that's keeping pace with you. And that's that's an important relationship. Yeah. And uh, just like so many other segments, uh, I mean, it's been front page news, hasn't it, now for some time, is this huge ongoing threat around cybersecurity. And I think nowhere is there as such 
highly sensitive and confidential data as sits in the, in the justice segment. So uh, what are you seeing there in terms of how the justice system is leaning into that? It has a lot of um, issues and concerns, but I think they are progressively being addressed. Data sovereignty, uh, the recovery and retrieval of data, data storage, uh, particularly in the sovereign country of the jurisdiction, a whole range of issues about the accessibility of that data as well as, as its recovery if particular sites go down. Digital transformation also brings new issues about security, even in terms of the participants in the system. Once upon a time, a lawyer would turn up at a counter in a court, you could see the face of the individual, and if he's a regular customer, you knew them, or they could (laughs) produce some identity. All of that participation is now happening remotely, and so there needs to be disciplines and governance around how the participants are engaged and are able to participate in the system, what rights and privileges they have, and once you've got the data, all these issues about data sovereignty, integrity, accessibility, uh, all key aspects. And if you're working with a partner in the industry, they absolutely understand the sensitivity and nuances associated with that and can give you assurances around it. Oh, fantastic. So look, you you were very successful in driving change in New South Wales. Could you share with us other stories that you've seen across the justice space in terms of those that have been able to step through and and manage change really effectively? Absolutely. And sometimes it depends on who the change champion is. The change champion can come from the leadership group. It can come from the middle management group. It can come from uh, industry participants. And so you take advantage of of where that momentum is coming from and build build up around that so that once you've achieved success and they those champions will often be a little bit more tolerant about missteps and occasional faults once you've achieved success in a, in that smaller environment those testimonials from those individuals are key to persuading the rest of the cohort to to come on the journey and to see the advantages uh, of it certainly more so than a missive from the secretary of the department or the Minister of the Crown saying, you know, we think this is a good idea and you should all get on board. Uh, those are, those change champions are really the, the key to it. One of the most important examples I saw was a regular use of the justice system is by small businesses seeking to recover debts from their, from their clients. And uh, once they've exhausted all their own possibilities, they come to the court to get the court's uh, empowerment to recover that debt through recovery of assets or other property that the the debtor might have. Now, once upon a time, that used to take between 20 and 30 days to get the original order, and it was a real impediment to debt recovery and cash flow for small businesses, which is key. By changing that system, by centralizing the function, by digitally enabling it, by allowing those small businesses to log on and get access to the service, often after hours, after the closing hours of the court, because they're running a, a small business and it's taking all their time, we found that more than 30% of uh, online applications for small debt enforcement 
came after the ordinary hours of operations, weekends or in the evenings, when people had time available to do that. And because we were able to centralise the process, uh, we instead of having 135 people doing it uh, spread out across the jurisdiction, it was done by two and a half people. And instead of taking weeks and months to do it, it was taking minutes and hours. And that was a tremendous boost to small business people seeking to improve improve the cash flow of their organisations, and a great jurisdiction to operate in if you are a small business and attracts business and commerce to your jurisdiction because your justice system is an efficient operator. I think it's just one really great example of of a, um, a better access to justice, or in this case, an, an outcome, right? Exactly. By applying technology. So um, look, it's uh, we're coming to the end, and uh, I really actually just want to thank you for your very generous time and, and, and your insights. And maybe we could finish with a couple of questions. And, and one thing I'd just like to ask you is, is there one last piece of advice that you have for, for leaders, either in the judiciary or, or in other segments who are looking to drive a, a digital and innovation agenda? Absolutely. I think the next generation is not about building and designing the thing yourself. It's in the initial stages, it might have been a bit like the Henry Ford model where they pumped in all the raw materials at one end, Henry put them all together, and a motor vehicle came out the other. These days, it's about partnerships. It's about applying yourself to the skills and attributes that you have that operates best and working with partners that you can trust and who, who are going to be there for the long term that are going to give you the skills and benefits that are, are, are going to enhance your operation. Partnerships are a key element about making uh, businesses or government services or any other function work well. So look out for partnerships to make, make your business successful. That's music to my ears and it's really great advice, I think. And uh, look, the very last thing I'd like to ask you is, you know, I actually, I see you as somewhat of a spring chicken. I'm just really keen to understand what's next for Michael Talbot. Well, thanks, Mark. I I'm having a lot of fun um, working with people who are looking to embrace this transformation and to understand its elements, what works, what doesn't work, where are the pitfalls and traps. And um, I must say... Um, it's it's really quite intellectually challenging and pleasing to to be coaching and guiding people through those um, programs of reform and change because they do have such a major impact on on uh, communities on the integrity of of communities and on the confidence that communities have grow and and develop I'm also working in a number of other not-for-profit organisations which are looking to have an impact on social justice. And I think uh, having been part of the justice system and seeing people fall into that cycle of crime and, and misadventure, that uh, I'd be, I'm working with organisations that are looking to set up people at the early part of their life on the right pathways so that they have the chance to make a uh, a positive contribution to their own lives and families and to the lives and, and uh, security of, of the community. And um, I think there's much to be done that will enhance um, the well-being of the community overall and improve people's capacity to contribute. Well, Michael, that's purposeful work and I think you're a good human. So thank you so much again for coming on. It's just been really interesting. Mark, delighted to chat with you this morning. Thank you. 
wasn't Michael Talbot interesting to hear from? I really hope you enjoyed the discussion with Michael. Please keep tuning in to the Ready Podcast. Get ready for more great guests and please subscribe at your favourite streaming service. Bye for now.